Welcome to In The Know, a podcast hosted by Caitlin Dager and Samara Delmenico, where we take a deep dive into the boring stuff to bridge the gap between the law and young people. In other words, giving you your legally blonde moment. I object. Hello, happy hump day, everyone. This week, we will be returning to one of our favorite episodes topics to date, the prohibition of conversion practices. If you haven't listened to our earlier episode on this last year, where we discussed the bill in its very early stages, head on over to get some very important context before you join us today. Wow, last year. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) I was like, that's wrong, and then I thought about it. On today's show, we're running you through the actual legislation which has been passed, the specific sections, comments from prominent public bodies, and quite scathing critics too, before throwing it back to you to decide where you sit and hopefully start the discussion about this in your circle of friends. But first, Samara, how was your week? I've actually had a really, really massive week. Mm. I've written a list because I am horrendous at remembering what I want to say. So in very, very exciting news, and we'll do a whole episode on it upcoming because I'm very (laughs) self-centered, I am 90% done with my application to become a lawyer. So if you don't know, you have to do an application to the Supreme Court. It's called admission. And it is very lengthy and you have to do so many documents and I've done it. I've paid my $867.30 and I'm just waiting for the final confirmation. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) It's been a long time coming, six years. Such a long time coming. Yeah. What about your week? My week. Uh, This week I accepted a new job offer. Yes. Very exciting. I resigned from a job that I've been in since I was literally a baby. And by Mm. baby, I mean I was just fresh 19 when I started and now I'm 22. So I'm actually quite emotional about a workplace, which is ridiculous, (laughs) Um, but super excited to be moving on to my next thing. So that was a really big emotional rollercoaster to start my week. Mm, And for those who don't know, we actually work together. So I'm losing my lunch buddy and work wife. This is sad news. Mm, Well, you know, got to find someone new in my new place. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, into the boring stuff. Woohoo! In the Know podcast and affiliated content are for information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any matter. For the full disclaimer and further information, please refer to our show notes. So we wanted to pick this topic up again just one more time, partially because of the positive feedback we received on the episode, partially because we think it's a really landmark piece of law, and partially because there's been quite a bit of further debate since we first did the episode. When someone says partially, I think there's like two 50-50 parts, not like 17 <laughs> partialies. Well, actually, if you did English in school, which I'm sure you did, it's the rule of three. Oh, for God's sake, don't be such a nerd. Anyway, if you are not already aware, on the 4th of February 2021, a proposed law criminalising gay conversion practices was passed in Victoria after a marathon 12-hour debate. Literally, 12 hours. They entered in at 11am and they did not leave until 6pm. Quick mess. No, they kept going until 11pm. So after they finished the debate at 6pm, the bill was examined and scrutinised again in detail and the final vote took place just before 11pm. Insane. Literally a 12-hour day. Yeah, yeah. 
The bill passed without amendment. Which is super, super rare, especially on a very contentious issue, because usually what happens in Parliament, and I mean, I'm by no means an expert, but they have a bit of back and forth Mm. and compromise to try to get a form of middle ground where they have enough people to make a majority to Mm -hmm. pass. So the fact that there was so much scrutiny that this went on for 12 hours and it still passed without amendments is is really saying something, I think. Yeah, if you look at the VicGov website, it's got a list of all of the proposed amendments and what's happened Mm -hmm. to them. And there's a couple of them, but they've all been, quote, debated and defeated, Mm. So, which means they didn't get taken in. So on the 4th of February, this bill passed through the Legislative Council 27 votes to 9. Just to briefly run through the legislation-making process, essentially a bill has to pass the upper and lower houses before it becomes a law. If you want to hear more about this... Plug, 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 plug. Jump over to our bite-sized bit that we did basically right at the start Mm. of the podcast. On legislation. Yeah, on legislation, and it goes right into detail. But basically... Along this process that the bill went through, the contents are debated numerous times. As we said, amendments and omissions are made and our politicians are given the chance to vote. Now, the amendments actually, and what was in the case of this legislation as well, can be as small as changing editing or omitting a single word and they debate over this Mm -hmm. omitting a single word well you would know as a soon-to-be lawyer yes that a single word can make all the difference yeah and it can be as big as removing or adding entire clauses wow So under this bill, anyone found trying to suppress or change another person's sexuality or gender identity faces up to 10 years in jail or fines of almost $10,000 if it can be proved beyond reasonable doubt that their actions cause serious injury. Now, we go into all the very detailed facets of this bill in our earlier episode Mm -hmm. on conversion practices when the bill was literally just a bill, barely passed through the lower house, Mm. if I remember correctly. It was basically a draft yeah and as the bill didn't pa- as the bill passed without amendments that episode is a perfect one to go back to if you want all the details of this this ep we're about to go into is more of i guess a commentary voicing the concerns about mm. the bill mm-hmm. uh, and and what it will mean in practice now and i guess because it passed without amendment concerns that are yet to be addressed yeah exactly gotcha so before we dive headfirst into that let's just as a quick note, touch on the significance of this bill. So the advocates for it, including Brave Network, the LGBTIQA plus committee of the Uniting Church in Australia and Rainbow Catholics have described this bill as the world's most significant achievement in legislation curtailing the diabolical influence of the conversion movement. That's a huge statement coming from a a church-based group as well. Mm, Huge, especially because a lot of the controversy around this bill was because of religious freedoms. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the reasons why this quote really rang home for me was when we were looking at similar legislation Mm. and the differences between, say, legislation, for example, in Queensland, Mm. who passed a super similar bill in recent years, but the Victorian bill here... Is, is so landmark, and I guess why this quote really rings true for it, is that it prohibits harmful practices, not just in healthcare settings, but also religious settings. So it includes things like carrying out a religious practice, including, but not limited to, a prayer-based practice, a deliverance practice, or an exorcism. And if you go back to our earlier ep on this, we actually compare it to a couple of different 
pieces of legislation in places like America, mm-hmm. different states in Canada, and really the focus is on healthcare. So Victoria is kind of entering this whole new field, which is why there's quite a bit of concern about, mm. I guess, how general it is, how broad it is, how it's going to be regulated. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about second reading speeches a lot, but essentially it's a tool that is used to help understand the intention behind a bill in the process of it being formed. And so it happens in Parliament and it's a point in time where the politician who's moving this bill comes in and says, hey, these are reasons we're doing this and this is why. And it's a really great tool for lawyers and people in the legal profession who are interpreting legislation because it goes straight to the intention of the bill. We will now draw your attention to this second reading speech. And the bill is discussed as being based on a really broad definition of change or suppression practices. And interestingly enough, a lot of the debate actually centers around how broad this legislation is and how it has potentially overstepped the mark. Mm. And a lot of this criticism actually comes from the religious sector, as we said, but also to our utter surprise, I I wasn't expecting it, but there were actually some really big, reputable players who held concerns. And I mean, reading their concerns, I I was kind of the same. Yeah. And I think we'll go into it later, but one of the organisations was the Law Institute of Victoria, which Mm. is kind of like our peak body for people in the legal industry and they do a lot of great work Mm. in this sector and with Mm -hmm. this community and hold a lot of respect within the legal community a huge amount and they actually had a lot of concerns about Mm. the bill how it was passed and the state it was passed in and it's super interesting as two people who are obviously and you can probably tell by this podcast quite left-winged yes and we have I don't know about you, Samara, but I have kind of like a no-harm policy. Mm. So if something is harmful towards someone, get rid of it if it doesn't affect me and it Mm. doesn't harm me as a result. Mm. And so it's super interesting to have bodies like the LIV, the Law Institute of Victoria, come in and be like, hey, we're being super objective and analytical here. We have expertise in this area and we think you have made some mistakes. Mm. And it's not out of not supporting the community or not supporting what the bill's trying to do. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting perspective to take into account. Yeah. And we were talking about this today just to build on your no harm policy about how or or being left about how we're kind of in a bit of a bubble with our Mm. friendship group where where the circles we run in are very open they're very progressive um you know we all go to university so we're relatively educated and so it really takes doing a bit of a deep dive like we have to kind of broaden our perspectives and settle somewhere in between that isn't necessarily reflecting the views around us of our peers but probably a more accurate view so we're not just looking in the echo chamber of what we see around us yeah and I think as well there's this really fine line between as you always tell me (laughs) I'm quite an idealistic person and I idealism and the practical implications of something are really different and I Mm. think this is a super great reminder that you can be really passionate and really in favor of a cause or of supporting a group of people But still, when it comes down to it, it it is something that has to work in Mm. practice. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with it being so broad is it, and we'll touch on this later, the consequences are huge. Mm. If someone makes a genuine misstep and it's covered under this bill, it might not be sinister. It might not constitute conversion practices. But the concern is that the way that the bill is worded, it covers too much and may also cover legitimate medical treatments and it's going to restrict access to services for already very vulnerable people Mm. 
because practitioners are going to be frightened to overstep and the the consequences are really severe. Yeah, and I think there's a really great quote that we'll read out from um, one of the psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Kerry Rubin said... The wording of the bill is so vague that current evidence-based exploratory style treatments could be drawn into this and viewed as a conversion practice. And I think that the issue is here, right, Samara, when I'm mm. thinking we are, both have some background in psychology too. I'm, yep. I'm doing my psych degree and, and you've graduated from it, mm-hmm. is that there are legitimate evidence-based practices that involve almost prodding yeah. your client and yeah. asking them and, and challenging what they have to say and that can be really beneficial and really helpful. But also, in light of this new legislation, what Dr. Rubin's saying here is that it very much could be pulled under it. Mm, that it's a little bit of a blanket rule. And, I mean, you brought it up before, litigation. A lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, medical practitioners are going to be worried about being the one to be made example of, mm-hmm. having a complaint against them being investigated, taken to court and prosecuted for this as the test case to yeah. know that this legislation may not be entirely hitting the mark. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify as well, Karen Rubin knows what he's talking about as the chair of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Okay, away from psychiatrists and the medical profession and back to the Law Institute of Victoria that I mentioned earlier. Mm. A huge part of the massive 12-hour debate that we were talking about before was actually sparked by the LIV writing to the government um, with concerns that it had from its members, so members being Victorian lawyers. Mm -hmm. The president of the LIV, Tanya Wolfe, wrote in this letter to the Justice Department that it had received quote-unquote, concerned feedback that the bill was overly broad. They said, is it the department's intention that the bill intends to cover such conversations between children and their parents, family or caregivers, the letter asked, while also stating that the institute actually supported the intent of the ban. So again, we're hearing they support it and its underlying message, Mm -hmm. but they're concerned about the way in which the bill is worded to be able to effectively be administered, I guess, and this area be regulated. And I think um, you mentioned earlier before we started recording about like a a conversation between a parent and a child. Mm. And you said something along the lines of, you know, you have a seven-year-old child and he says that he loves a boy. And what Mm. if a parent comes and says... Oh, no, you don't. In the way that you would if your kid says they want to go and become an alien. Mm. And if it's used in that same context, does that then mean, you know, someone overhears it and they can potentially prosecute you because you said a throwaway comment to your child? And we're not saying that you should say that or that's a good parenting example. But I don't know, the same way I tell my little cousin when Mm. he's three years old that he can grow up and become a dog. Yeah. It's just as harmful, is it? Is it not? I mean, I'd like people to comment on it. I'm not sure if I'm being too simplistic. Mm. I mean, the practical application would be quite interesting because the harsher penalties come into play when the practice, beyond reasonable doubt, is to cause serious injury. Mm. So I think that the bill is trying Mm. to encapsulate that and trying to recognize that that kind of thing perhaps isn't but as we said we we don't know how practically this is going to play out and it is quite concerning that the liv our peak body Mm. 
filled with experts yeah. representing them, very passionate experts in their fields, cutting edge. Mm. There would be there's people who are part of the LIV who are going to the High Court, which is mm-hmm. our biggest court in Australia, mm. that essentially sets the precedence for mm. every other court in Australia. That are standing up here and saying, "Hey, maybe watch out here. I interpret legislation for a living, right?" Yeah, yeah. and basically they're just out here asking for clarification that the bill isn't trying to take away the guidance, counselling, the conversations that you have between a parent or a loved one when you are struggling with your gender identity or sexual orientation. And it understands that the that's not the bill's intention. And it said that in its letter, but it's also said that it may be appropriate that the bill amend its wording to mm-hmm. make sure that the proper intent is being shone through. Gotcha. Let's now touch a little bit on the religious leaders and their view on this bill. Mm-hmm. So several religious organisations have actually called Samara, and I quote, for an urgent pause on the bill so there can be more consultation. Mm. And an open letter published by the Islamic Council of Victoria and some Catholic leaders said, and I quote, At present, the bill appears to target people of faith in an unprecedented way, puts limits on ordinary conversations in families, and legislates for what prayer is legal and what prayer is not. Just before I continue here, I think this is super interesting. And we touched on our earlier episode about this whole idea of religious freedom Mm. and how it's this concept that kind of exists but is a little bit vague. It's not expressly written anywhere. So we're not always really sure where it sits. And so what's happening here is they're calling on, I guess they're directly targeting that and challenging that and saying, this legislation is telling us that we can pray for certain things and we can't pray for other things because Mm. the law is interfering with the church. And Mm. as we know, there's a super big separation of powers between the church and legal institutions. So this is a really interesting conflict, I guess. Mm. I thought you were going to say the same thing that I was thinking, but you went in a different direction. I think it's really interesting that when you break down the crux of that quote is essentially relatively similar to exactly what the LIV is saying, mm-hmm. just from a different perspective, because it puts limits on ordinary conversations in families. Go back to the LIV. They're talking about conversations between parents and children. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting at, at its crux, even though they're coming from wildly different perspectives. Mm. I think there's a bit of a bow to draw there. But I think also, and this is, I guess, the left-wing cynic in me, (laughs) I I read that and I got alarm bells when it said target people of faith in an unprecedented way because I think that that's quite unfair and that's quite extreme too because Mm. I think in what way does it target people of faith when in the same sentence they're saying it's putting limits on ordinary conversations in families. And also the the bill relates directly to also medical practices. Yeah, and I think... We talk about earlier about how the Victorian bill here is basically wide-reaching, mm. which is problematic in ways that we've discussed earlier about how broad it is, etc. But because it's wide-reaching, it means it doesn't specifically target religious organisations or mm. people of faith. And then, therefore, how can it then be said that they're being targeted in an unprecedented way when other legislation from other states and other countries is specifically religious-based conversion practices. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You lost me there somewhere in the middle, but I came back around. (laughs) So we'll go back to ICV Vice President Adele Salam, who said that 
They were against the harmful conversion practices, but were worried the bill will prevent religious ministers from providing one-on-one pastoral care. He said, people of faith who are struggling with their sexuality are actually seeking that advice. Now, I found this a little bit amusing, to be honest. When he was asked how many people had actually (laughs) come to him or other faith leaders for advice on their sexuality or gender, Mr. Salam said he did not know of anyone specifically. So we'll go back to our politicians now and we're just going to quickly touch on some of the controversies around the bill and the debate that went on before the bill was passed. So the shadow attorney general, Edward Donoghue, before the bill was brought in actually, said Daniel Andrews needs to listen to the many Victorians who support banning gay conversion therapies but have legitimate concerns about the drafting of this bill. I think that's a super interesting point to make here too because I remember when this bill first got announced by Danny Andrews, Mm. he basically, I mean, I saw it on an Instagram post because that's how we get our news these days, us us millennials. Yeah. But essentially when I read it, I was like, whoa, how did this bill pass without me even hearing anything? Because he said it so certainly Mm. and so unequivocally that it was going... Definitive. It was definitive, Mm. that this was going to happen the way that it did. Mm. And it's like it's a one-tracked mind. No amendments, one-track mine. Like, mm. th- there's my way of the highway, it feels like, we've done with this bill, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the actual passing of the bill was quite chaotic, for lack mm. of a better term. You know, you had certain MPs abstaining their vote. You had people voting against their own party. You've got other MPs coming out with some really inflammatory quotes about what they think on the bill. And it it got very, very emotional and heated. And very interesting that you bring up that point, Samara, because Mm -hmm. it leads me perfectly into what I wanted to talk about next, which was MP Harriet Shing, who's Victoria's first and only openly gay MP, who gave a super emotionally charged speech during the debate. Mm. So she spoke of the emotional trauma of being denied the ability to express your sexuality and to be accepted. And in the chaos that we have been mm. alluding to, she was cut short at during about, this speech. During this speech, at about six minutes, and her speech in total was about ten, by two Liberal MPs on a technical point of order while she was naming the MPs who had chosen to abstain from the vote. Because we had to look it up, I'm going to assume that you don't know what a point of order is either it refers to when someone draws attention to rule a rules violation in a meeting of a deliberative assembly so something like a debate so they have interrupt i watched the speech they interrupted her mid-sentence to call this point of order she then asked to complete her speech and it was denied and then in her later statement to the age she accuses the liberal mps of and i quote literally shutting down the speech of the first and only openly gay woman in the victorian parliament end quote Mm. i just a bit of a mic drop moment isn't it yeah i was furious and i just think how ironic that we are debating the most i mean one of the organizations mentions earlier it's a monumental kind of world Mm. first bill Mm. that we're debating everyone's saying they're accepting and this is where they want to go and the intention is correct and then they interrupt the only openly available representative in the parliament i i mean i think on one hand hand you could say they clearly had a a genuine technical point of order to bring up and that 
is one side of it, I guess. But on the other side of it, it, it seemed very contrived. Watching the speech, it, it was hard to watch mm. her being interrupted like that. She was on the edge of tears. She, she, it was a really, really emotional speech. And, and an important moment, I yeah, think. Yeah, it, it just felt very hostile. Yes, hostile is the correct word there. For the full speech, I really recommend you go watch some of it because she gets really passionate and it, it's really, really a great commentary on this bill from someone who is directly affected by it, yeah, more or less. I think where we should end on the discussion about Harriet Shing is her quote here. It is not acceptable that in a debate like this, victims and survivors and our communities, my communities, are denied the opportunity to have our equality, our pain and our hurt and trauma on a footing of which is the most utmost importance. She was interrupted after that. We're nearly at the end here and we just would like to touch on a couple of the politicians who voted against the bill. There were nine of them and we draw your attention particularly to two of them, Liberal MP Bev Arthur and Bernie Finn, who defied their party's position and crossed the floor to vote against the government's legislation. Now, we picked out a few quotes from Liberal MP Bernie Finn's description of the proposed law and we were relatively shocked by what he had to say. They're problematic to say the least. Yes. So he described the law as an attack on basic freedoms and said the elements of the bill were social engineering. This is a very interesting quote that we have from Mr. Finn here where he says, we know that gender dysphoria is a condition that is dealt with very effectively by the medical fraternity. We do not need the sort of social engineering that this bill brings about. We've already seen a great number of children go to the children's hospital. For example, confused about their gender. It has gone from half a dozen a year to well over a thousand, as I understand it. That itself is a worry. This bill is just going to add to that. We could say so much, but do with that as you will. Fight! I do have one thing to say, though. I also have one thing to say. (laughs) We'll let you think on it and reflect, but just as a quick comment here, I just would like to draw a comparison in the ways that the Liberal MP here is talking and, and Harriet Shing was talking. She's talking from this emotional, traumatic and troubled hardship adversity where people don't feel accepted and don't feel they have the opportunity to express themselves and she's talking about how hard it was to do that and then now we have mr mr bernie finn come in and say it's social engineering and that half a dozen kids used to be confused about their gender or or their attraction or whatever Mm. it is and now there's thousands Mm. isn't it a great thing that they feel like they are supported and can come forward and discuss those things like I had a quite in-depth conversation with my mum the last time that I was home and she asked me whether or not I thought that there was an increased prevalence of things like people coming out on as LGBTIQA+, or whether I thought that it was just because it was an increase of, um, an increase of recognition. Mm. And I think I I came to a place that it was an increase of recognition that probably the same amount of people would have been struggling with gender dysphoria, would have been struggling with being trans or gay or, but back in the eighties, that wasn't really talked about and that wasn't okay. And we're getting to a place now where 
it is more okay and it is more talked about and it's more recognized. So of course we're going from half a dozen a year to a thousand a year because we understand greater and it's more recognized. And I think the education is just better, you know? When you're a child, there's so many things you don't know. And I think by bringing these conversations in super early, then kids can start to realize like, they're not weird. They're not Mm. strange. This feeling that they're having is okay. And it's something that they can be supported in talking about or going through or working out where they stand and like mm. I, I know I've said this to you a thousand <laughs> yeah. times I know exactly, you know exactly what, what you're about to say, say. <laughs> you know like it, when I have children one day I want them to be able to come home when they're seven years old and say they're in love with their best friend who's the same sex and that'd be okay mm. and then maybe they'll grow up later and realize that it was a friendship love and it wasn't a love love or maybe it is a love love like wouldn't be it and be it just, just doesn't matter it doesn't matter and it wouldn't it just be so incredible to let them go through that mm-hmm. like teenagers and kids go through so much and do so many stupid things and they find their way like why not take the pressure off that and let them explore mm. like it's for ex- experimenting where's the harm that's my yeah. issue like people are so concerned about harm but if we provide a supportive environment to discover it and it'd be okay if you think you're a girl that likes girls and then you realize like you're not when Mm. you grow up later like all the other way around like I just I just think it can do so much good yeah I think this comes back to the conversation that we always have and I mean you guys are realizing now that we talk on this podcast constantly and we also talk constantly (laughs) outside of the podcast but that we are a direct reflection of the bubble, the echo chamber, the people we spend most of our time with. So while we're sitting here and marvelling at Mr Finn's reaction to this bill, I think it is really important to note, whilst we absolutely do not condone what he said, it's clearly an indication of the time that he was brought up in, the circles that he runs in. He's a Liberal MP. Uh, we should be able to expect more from him. But for the most part, it's a more conservative party. And so I think it's really heartening to know that most of the people coming through in our age group Mm. fundamentally disagree with this and and hopefully we can expect more progressive socially conscious bills like this in the future that might not be so controversial or might not be so landmarked but this but society is what it is right now isn't it and in society there's people like us Mm. and in society there's people like mr finn and Mm. i think it's we have to recognize that we're still really young Mm, we still mm-hmm. don't know many things. We have a lot of wiseness to gain. We do. I am ridiculously idealistic and I just want everyone to be happy and feel free to yes. express themselves. Yes. But like the LIV has very quickly drawn our attention to here, mm. complete freedom and complete expression sometimes means that, I mean, psychiatrists who used to feel comfortable talking to people about issues they're feeling about their sexuality no mm. longer feel comfortable doing that mm. because this bill is too broad. And then is that not more harmful than not having the bill at all? Yeah. That's where I'm stuck at now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think all I was trying to get at then was that whilst this is very, very much our view, we recognise it might not be the right view. Obviously, banning conversion practices is absolutely, absolutely necessary and we're celebrating this bill to no end. But the views we express on on this podcast are those that we have formed by the from the world around us our perspectives and so when we're talking about all these things that's the context we're coming from Mm. 
And I guess a good way to leave you here and on a very positive note at that. Such an idealistic, lovely quote. That I could have said it myself. Beautiful Caitlin <laughs> talks about the law and how all its power and how okay, lovely and let's great get into it is. the quote. We'll get into the quote. So this is the CEO of Equality Australia, Anna Brown, who says, and I think I might frame this on my wall because I can cry it right now. It just touches my heart. While no law can fix a complex social problem on its own, this law is a great step towards ending the incredible harm caused by LGBTIQ plus conversion practices and paves the way for positive reform in other parts of Australia. This law sends a powerful message that LGBTIQA people are whole and valid just as they are and establishes powerful mechanisms to deal with incredibly harmful practices that LGBTIQA plus have for too long endured across Victoria. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't the law great? I love the law. I really like that. It can just influence so much. Yeah, yeah. I just think like walking away to round off this episode – Walking away from this episode today, I can walk away knowing that Victoria, the state I live in, does not condone Mm. you punishing people or trying to change people for being who they are. And I think that that is such a powerful message that we're saying we will throw you in jail for 10 years if Mm. you try to change someone because they they are perfect. They are fine. They are allowed to be their whole selves exactly how they want to be. Isn't that powerful? Like We now live in a state... Yes. That says that. Yeah. I think it's a huge statement and I'm really, really proud to have seen it, been able to talk about it, been able to do an episode on it. I just hope that the bill or the act, once it does come in, isn't marred by these outstanding questions. And I really, really hope that in the, the 12 months that it takes to actually have this bill in force, that these issues can be answered and clarified so that once it does come in, it can be a seamless transition and the really positive steps that this is taking isn't overshadowed by the potential pitfalls. Mm. But all in all, a really, really positive move. Now you're in the know, go talk with your friends. Yes. All sources from today's episode are in the show notes. If this has brought up something for you, please, please get in touch with the relevant bodies, a lawyer, legal aid, beyond blue. We will put them all in the show notes. As always, we are a tiny independent podcast. Cutting my grass. (laughs) We're two gals that love a good chat. Clearly. And we're recording this from uh, various locations in our houses that are not professional recording studios. Mm -hmm. So your support in getting our names out there is what is going to keep us going and maybe get us a microphone this year. (laughs) Subscribe on your Vapod streaming service. Leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at inthenow underscore podcast. Thank you for your time today, Samara. Thank you so much. See you next week.